Today's text is from the book of Matthew, chapter 18. If you would like to turn there as we do the second part in this sermon, I've entitled The Pathway to Forgiveness. Now, just a little forewarning this morning, forgiveness is going to be the theme that runs through um, the, the sermon, but there's a, there's a larger concept that uh, we must, as followers of Christ, and those who have been regenerated, those who have been born again, must follow if we're going to truly understand and get forgiveness. And Jesus talks a little bit about this in this parable. He, he introduces this. So reading in uh, Matthew 18, verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if, not, if you're not sure how much that is, that is a boatload of money, folks. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a couple of bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Last week, we discussed the mindset of Upper Midwest culture. Now, uh, those of you who know me know I've been pretty itinerant most of my life. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, and have lived in Flint, Michigan, San Jose, Costa Rica, San Miguel de Tucumán in Argentina, Buenos Aires, Argentina, Atlanta, Jordan, Jordan, Georgia. I've not lived in Jordan. Atlanta, Georgia, Bradenton, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, Palmetto, Florida, Fargo, North Dakota, Brooksville, Florida, Grove City, Pennsylvania, Bismarck, North Dakota, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and finally Jamestown. Now, I can tell you that each one of these places have their own unique culture. People think and behave in certain ways and value different things, don't you know? Some of these things are similar from culture to culture. Others 
are radically different. We talked about this last week. In North Dakota, for example, we avoid confrontation. In Buenos Aires, Argentina, confrontation is embraced and celebrated. It's kind of like a natural, a national sport. In Florida, people don't seek confrontation out, but they're not afraid to jump in when necessary. Now, let's come back to this parable, which is one of 23 in the book of Matthew, which describes the culture of God's heavenly kingdom by providing a stark contrast between the merciful king and the unmerciful servant. The point being, Christ followers are expected and directed to learn about and observe to the best of our ability what I'm going to call kingdom culture. Kingdom culture. This directive isn't something we can just out of, opt out of, rather, when it's inconvenient. But how do we come then to understand and embrace kingdom culture, especially where forgiveness is concerned? Well, the, at the beginning of the passage in Matthew, Jesus gives us a clue. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, now Jesus is not, in my opinion, not only addressing this matter of forgiveness. But, but he's trying to help the disciples to understand. Because remember, he's talked a lot. There are 23 parables that talk about the kingdom. And he's trying to help his disciples see, look, there is a heavenly kingdom where the values are radically different than any earthly kingdom, including all those I named and however myriad more there are. And he's trying to help his disciples understand this heavenly kingdom. Again, I'd like to quote, if you would indulge me, from my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, uh, from his book, Mere Christianity. And he, 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 he kind of pokes at this a little bit, this concept of kingdom culture and why it's difficult for us. So listen carefully to this. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. The more we get, he continues, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. 
I am not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. This is the essence of kingdom culture. We learn to regard as ourself, excuse me, we learn to regard ourself, that is, our goals, achievements, possessions, ambitions, through the lens of the cross. What does this mean? In our natural condition, that is, without any awareness of our state before a just and holy God, our Creator, we are hopelessly lost, dead men walking. Our Creator, however, desires to give us life. John 3.16, we all know it. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world, but have everlasting life. That's right. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 8.12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Kingdom culture flows from the life that God gives, a life obtained by faith. As John 6.47 states, Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, remember last week we noted that without prayer and faith, forgiveness I apologize for this microphone. I think it's rubbing on my whiskers. No, I'm good. I'll make it work. If this doesn't work, I'll grab the other mic. Uh, Last week, we noted that without prayer and faith, forgiveness, a critical component of kingdom culture, cannot exist. We concluded first that forgiveness is an act of faith, remember? Uh, Not an emotional response. These were our, our conclusions. Secondly, that forgiveness demands we honestly view ourselves in the light of Calvary. And third, forgiveness heals us from damage we encounter in life. Those were our our three points in the conclusion. We also pressed home the point that Jesus made forgiveness a non-negotiable point of salvation. Now, we understand that redemption and rebirth isn't something that we earn, right? It's received by faith through the grace of our Father in heaven. Nonetheless, and this is where the hitch is, so pay attention to this, it is conditional. Wait, 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 Mark. What what do you mean? Salvation is conditional? Well, of course it is. I think think that's where many people miss it. They get this whole thing is that we're saved by grace through faith, but they stop there. And they don't go any further to realize that there are some conditions that we must meet that that are clearly pointed out in Scripture. John 15, 1 through 8, and these these Scripture references, I'm not going to read them all. You can go back and research them. It'll be online. John 15, 1 through 8, we must bear fruit. 
and then what we're studying in these sermons, Matthew 6, we must forgive. We must be obedient to and act upon the word of Christ, Matthew 7. Here's the thing. When we live by faith, these things come naturally. We have to strive. But the living by faith piece is, 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 not, is not easy. It's, it's not a walk in the park. So let's talk once again, and, and I've used the same outline, um, the three E's, the expectancy of faith, the efficacy of prayer, and the essentials of forgiveness. I've used that same outline this week, but from a little different vantage point. So the first one, the expectancy of faith. And again, remember life's mortar. This week I wrote, the righteous shall live by faith. Living by faith isn't easy. The pathway to faith is obedience. Without an obedient, willing heart, it's impossible to live by faith. In fact, the measure of our faith is the degree of obedience to God's word we display in everyday life. We see this played out in stark contrast in the Old Testament in the lives of King Saul and King David. King Saul gave lip service to God, but he was really all about doing things. However, they seemed best to him at the moment and just giving an occasional head nod to God. His attitude and blindness led him to eventual tragedy. David, on the other hand, sought to obey God. That's why God chose him to be king. And he wasn't perfect, and he made some huge mistakes, but at the end of the day, he always sought to honor the Lord in all that he did, and he was willing to receive correction. We see this reflected at the end of Psalm 51, where he writes, For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Faith is an irresistible force, as we saw last week. We receive the Holy Spirit through faith. You can study that out in Galatians 3. Every believer has at least some basic notion that God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the... Mm -hmm. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, but it's a fact. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, right? The Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit. As we consider the Godhead, now stay with me here, we readily accept God the Father as creator and ultimate sovereign. We also don't have any problem grasping who Jesus is, God made flesh, redeemer, king, and judge. Most of the time when we pray, we address the Father and end the prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. That's right, in Jesus' name, we acknowledge the Son. But many of us have a hard time grappling with the Holy Spirit's identity. It would never occur to us to include the Holy Spirit as the object of our prayer. To include Him as the object of our prayer. In fact, many Christ followers don't see the Holy Spirit as a Him at all, but rather some kind of vague Obi-Wan Kenobi-ish force. And I put that sentence in there for Caleb. So there you go. 
<laughs> That's ridiculous, folks. The Holy Spirit, he's Christ's representative on this planet today. He's responsible for regeneration, the new birth that occurs when any man, woman, adolescent, or child come to faith and comes to faith in Christ. Listen to how the Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament by Jesus. When the, whole, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's in John 16. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, this is the Apostle Paul, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who, pronoun, who, not that, but who, the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. That's in 1 Corinthians 2. We see instances in the book of Acts where believers were filled with the Spirit which enabled and empowered them to carry on the work of the ministry. Some of us in this very room have had such an experience. It is the transformative work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to spiritual maturity. But folks, his work in our life is limited if we refuse to walk and live by faith. And that's a good place for an amen. Thank you for that one week amen. So we talked about faith being an essential ingredient for forgiveness. We also talked about prayer, the efficiency or the efficacy of prayer being a second essential ingredient for faith, and that these go hand in hand. So today we're going to explore this concept of being legitimate children. And if you're like, Mark, why, why, would you, why would you call it that? Why legitimate children? What is that all about? Well, say with me. Julia and I have six children, and in about two weeks, less than two weeks, number 18 grandchild. We know them better than anyone else on this planet. They grew up in our home. They know us intimately. They love us unconditionally as we do them. Either one of us would gladly die for them if the need arose. In many ways, we still live for them, within the context of kingdom culture, of course. They call us mama and dad, or grandma and gramps, or peepaw. Yeah, Jules is smiling. They understand, for the most part, how and why Julie and I live the way we do. They know that, again, within the context of kingdom culture, this, this term that we've coined this morning, anything, anything that we have is theirs, except my motorcycle. Although if they beg me hard enough, I, I might even give up that. Here's the beautiful thing. Those who are born again, regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit, have a similar relationship with the Father. 
In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul even goes so far as to call Jesus the first among many brethren. Folks, Jesus is our spiritual big brother. He's family. Now, if one of my children or grandchildren came up to me and began addressing me like many of us address the Heavenly Father, I would think it pretty strange. It would be stranger still if a son or daughter grew up in our home and never spoke to me at all. How much more should we engage in conversation with our Heavenly Father? Now you might say, but Mark, he never talks to me. Really? Could it be that you've just not cultivated the ability to hear his voice? I'll never forget the first time I heard the voice of the Father speak to me. Now, it, it, these were not audible words like someone standing there. And, and I don't want to give you the impression that this is a regular occurrence. Uh, it, it happens from time to time. And, and I have such a strong impulse, such a strong impression in my heart and my spirit that, that the words themselves are formed. And I mean, they're like specific words. The, the first time this happened was during a part of my spiritual pilgrimage where I was, I was leaving my parents' faith and adopting my own. And that happens when you hit 16, 17, 18, 19. You begin to realize, um, that's great. My parents believe that, and I believe that's true because I see them live it. But that's not enough for me. I've got to know. And in this particular part of my pilgrimage, I was like, almost like had an attitude because I was like, you know, God spoke to Moses and God spoke to Paul and God God doesn't speak to Mark. What, What on earth? Why? What's that about? And I was praying and seeking and, and wondering what I had to become to hear the voice of the Lord. Shortly after that, a few weeks after that, Julie and I broke up. We had been dating for about two and a half years, and interestingly enough, had chosen the same college to go to for our undergraduate before we ever knew each other. So, so that was an interesting component of our relationship. And we very early into our relationship, walked the aisle on a Sunday morning and consecrated ourselves to full-time Christian service, wherever the Lord might take us. We did it as a couple, but we did it because that's what we believed at the time God was calling us to do. So you have to realize that when we broke up, and we broke up because, quite frankly, our relationship wasn't right. We fought like cats and dogs. It wasn't Christ-centered. We didn't really honor the Lord in our relationship. And the Lord was taking us both through a degree of spiritual maturity where we had to say, to find Jesus, the pearl of great price, I've got to let everything go. We had to let each other go. It was hard. It hurt. Two or three days after that, I was walking across campus and I was just like belly aching. I was just moaning and complaining to the Lord. But Lord, you brought us together. We, I mean, we like dedicated our lives. I mean, I, I need her. I can't, I, can't, I can't do this without her. And, and a voice, the best way I know to describe it is a voice rose up inside of me and said, Son, 
what are the words to the song I just gave you? Now, the Lord had recently given me a song for an ensemble that we were in that went like this. Glory to God in the highest, you are everything I need. And how worthy is the lamb that was slain. It was just this nice little song that we sang with our ensemble. And, and it, they were, I mean, they were meaningful words, but they weren't deep, penetrating, heart-wrenching words. So when I heard that voice say, what were those words? I thought, glory to God in the highest, you are everything I need. And folks, it's like a light came on. I'm like, wait, wait, you are everything I need. I don't need anything else. And then I thought, whoa, wait, I just heard the voice of the Lord. <laughs> and I almost did a dance across campus there because that, that had happened. Now, I don't know if, if you've had that experience. I hope that you have because it's so important for us to cultivate that inward conversation with the Father, understanding that when he speaks, he will never contradict this book. I mean, I've had people come up to me and say, yeah, God, Mark told me da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If it's not in here, he can't have told you that. I don't care what you think. All the revelation that we've been given has been sealed, and it's in this book. There is no additional revelation. Go down that road, you get in a lot of trouble. In fact, this book is the means through which he speaks most directly to us. So. You want to hear the voice of God? Spend time in this book. I guarantee you will. The next point, living the paradox. Last week, we are called to freedom. We'll take a little bit different angle again this Sunday. In Democracy in America, Volume 2, Alex de Tocqueville writes this. When the taste for physical gratifications among them has grown more rapidly than their education. The time will come when men are carried away and lose all self-restraint. It's not necessary to do violence to such a people in order to strip them of the rights they enjoy. They themselves willingly loosen their hold. They neglect their chief business, which is to remain their own masters. This statement was made around the founding, the time of the founding of the United States of America. And it's a chilling statement in the way it describes our country today. The Apostle Paul writes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Guys, this is kingdom culture. Now remember, that's what we're talking about this morning. Listen to how, this is how Jesus puts it. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We get to choose slavery 
or freedom. Demanding our own way, our own rights, which leads to utter bondage, or subjecting ourselves to Christ's rule, which brings freedom. This is the great paradox of kingdom culture. And I have to chuckle hearing the child cry as it leaves the room because that's how we are. We go kicking and screaming away from this, right? We don't want to give this thing up. No, 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 no. But, but we have to. And it's only as we submit ourselves to the authority and the rule of Christ that we experience freedom, the freedom that's experienced in kingdom culture. So let's come back to the essentials of forgiveness. The first point we made last week was tearing down walls. So the, 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 the piece I'm going to tag on to it comes from Romans 12. We are members of each other. I have to tell you some bad news. At some point in time, I'm going, I'm, Mark Reeves, I'm going to likely offend or perhaps even hurt you. Probably won't be intentional, and I might not even realize that I've done it. But it's likely to happen. But don't worry. At some point in time, you're going to offend or perhaps even hurt someone. It probably won't be intentional, and you might not even realize you've done it. A big part of kingdom culture, folks, is the notion that as the body of Christ, we are members of each other. It's kind of like the old saying goes, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family, right? And because we're members of each other, we will inevitably step on each other's toes from time to time. I mean, I step on Caleb's toes all the time. If you're not sure, just ask him. He'll tell you, yeah, that's not true. Sometimes, maybe. I just got a smile, so I'm not, I have to talk, we'll have to talk about that later. When we do this, when we step out, or when we step on someone's toes, we, we can't, neither party, we can't just check out. We, we should bear patiently with one another and work towards reconciliation. Of all the places on our planet, this should be most greatly modeled in the church. In the universal church, that's the, what we sometimes call the Catholic church, the global church. That's Christianity across the board. And we all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet it is in the local church where the opposite seems to be true. I think we get these two churches confused. Like they're, they're, they're two different things. We adopt and embrace a grandiose attitude toward the global universal Catholic Church. That's the body of Christ at large. We're thrilled to be part of it. But we have no problem getting upset and critical toward members and leadership of the local church. Here's the thing. There is no difference between the two, at least not in the Bible. It's just the church. And yet the local church that would be, in case you're wondering, Buffalo City Church for us who have aligned ourselves with Buffalo City Church. The local church, as part of the greater whole, is where our devotion to Christ and to each other is expressed. 
that unconditional love we like to talk about so much. But we have to let go of the notion that the local church is going to be perfect. We hope to embrace and experience kingdom culture within the context of our local church family, but we become upset and disillusioned when it doesn't happen the way we expect it to. Understand this. Until we step into eternity, we're only going to get an occasional taste of kingdom culture. That's another good place for an amen. We will never experience it in its fullness in this life, even in the local church. So. Let's get on with the business of forgiveness and press into our mission. If you have something against someone in this church family, make it right before God. Go to that person. Talk it out. Give and receive forgiveness. And don't forget, we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to remove the blinders. You can study that out in 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul sums up kingdom culture on this planet like this. And John came up to me and said, what on earth version of the Bible was that quoted from? It's from the contemporary English version, which is a paraphrase, but I really liked the way it sounded. So check this. Our bodies are like tents that we live in here on earth. But when these tents are destroyed, we know that God will give each of us a place to live. These homes will not be buildings someone has made, but they are in heaven and will last forever. While we are here on earth, we sigh because we want to live in that heavenly home, the home Lori is experiencing right now, even as we're in this room. We want to put it on like clothes and not be naked. These tents we now live in are like a heavy burden, and we groan. But we don't do this just because we want to leave these bodies that will die. It is because we want to change them for bodies that will never die. God is the one who makes all this possible. He has given us his spirit to make us certain he will do it. So, always be cheerful. As long as we are in these bodies, we are away from the Lord. But we live by faith, not by what we see. Our ability to live by faith improves as we study up on kingdom culture in this book, the Bible, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us make it real in our lives. So let's revisit last week's conclusion. Same three points, but I'm adding an additional phrase to each point. One, within the context of kingdom culture, forgiveness is an act of faith, not an emotional response. And faith must define our lives. Secondly, Within the context of kingdom culture, forgiveness demands we honestly view ourselves in the light of Calvary and, for freedom's sake, remain loyal subjects of our Redeemer. Three, within the context of kingdom culture, forgiveness heals us from damage we encounter in life. 
and enables us to live life on mission together before a lost and dying world. One final footnote. In today's passage, we read uh, one of Jesus' parables about a man who just didn't get kingdom culture at all. And in the end, it cost him dearly. Let's not be that man. Would you pray with me?